Isaiah is often referred to as a mini Bible. It has 66 chapters while the Bible has 66 books. Its first 39 chapters speak of law and judgment. Isaiah's last 27 chapters describe God's grace and his salvation. And you know, that's how the Bible is constructed. The 39 Old Testament books are about God's law and the failure of the people to obey, while the last 27 New Testament books speak of God's plan for salvation. Again, Isaiah is a mini-Bible. And since we're comparing the Bible with Isaiah, we shouldn't be surprised that the last four chapters in Isaiah run parallel to the last four chapters in Revelation, the end of the Bible. Revelation 19 and Isaiah 63 both speak of Jesus' second coming, His role as the avenger of blood. And then Revelation 20 to 22 and Isaiah 64 to 66 describe the kingdom age when Jesus reigns, as well as the new heaven and new earth that follows afterwards. Now remember, Isaiah 62 ended with the watchman on the walls of Jerusalem. God had lifted up a banner, and He had raised up an army to protect His city. In fact, He calls out, salvation is coming, and we learn that that salvation is a person, King Jesus. And it's a battle-hardened Jesus that we find in Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The word Edom means red. and It's possible the first phrase here is a play on words. He comes from red wearing red. Later we see that the red garments are blood-stained garments. And there's no question who this warrior happens to be once he speaks. For only Jesus is mighty to save. He speaks what's right. He is glorious in appearance. He walks or travels with a greatness and strength. Yes, this can only be Jesus. And you know that every reporter is going to be vying for an interview. Imagine the Nielsen ratings if you can get an up-close exclusive with Jesus Christ. Well, here Jesus gets asked, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? In the first century, grapes were crushed between your toes. You know, you'd play some music and folks would start dancing in the wine press. Juice would splash up on your clothes. Well, Jesus answers the question. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. You know, this is strange. People crushed grapes in a crowd. It was often a community effort. But here, Jesus was alone. Because he wasn't just crushing grapes. Notice he explains. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. The stains on his garments weren't grape juice, but human blood. In his anger, in his fury, Jesus has trampled his enemies. John, in Revelation chapter 19, draws from this exact imagery. In verse 13, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, 
and his name is called the Word of God. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19 also pictures an army coming with Jesus. I believe that army will consist of you and me. And don't worry, our role in the battle will be minimal. For Isaiah 63 tells us, Jesus says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Hey, when Jesus died on the cross to forgive us, He did it all by Himself. He did it all alone. And when He returns to judge the world and make war with the rebels, He'll also do it alone. Revelation 19 refers to this battle by the name of Armageddon. But we've understood in the past that the mountain of Megiddo is merely the staging ground. It's where the enemy camps as they plan their siege of the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus will defend the holy city. He is the standard that God will lift up. He'll drive away the enemy, probably as far south as Basra or Edom, as it says here. The land south and east of the Dead Sea. This is why he's coming up from Basra now with blood-stained garments. You see, the next time you hear the battle hymn of the Republic, realize Isaiah 63 is where the vision of Jesus originates. It ultimately speaks of his second coming. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And so are we, verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Now understand, this is Jesus. This is the same Jesus who said to the woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Now he's saying, Vengeance is in my heart. This is still Jesus. It's the same heart. It's just big enough to be concerned about both mercy and justice. You see, in the Old Testament, a person's near kin, their near kinsman, their closest relative, had two duties. He was redeemer and he was avenger. You see, if a person got into debt and lost his land, the kinsman could redeem what he had lost. This is the background for the story of Ruth, remember. But another role was laid out in Numbers chapter 35. For if your brother was murdered, it was the near kinsman's job to take vengeance on the perpetrator. The law of Moses required an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tit for tat. Numbers 35 verse 19 reads, The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. You know, it's interesting, the kinsman played two diverse roles. At times, he was the kinsman redeemer, but at other times, he was the avenger of blood. And this was the case with our Lord Jesus. In becoming a man, he became our brother, our relative, our near kinsman. And he is a kinsman redeemer, no doubt about it. On the cross, he bought back what we had forfeited and lost to Satan through our sin. But he is also an avenger of blood. For those who spilt the innocent blood of God's people, the avenger will now spill their blood. Thus, Jesus is both Savior and Slayer. Though it is strange to us, the biblical, biblically, the two roles, they go together. 
That's why this same man who forgave the adulteress comes out of Basra, now covered in blood. Verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. In my own fury, it sustained me. Jesus' fury sustained him. What an interesting comment for the Son of God to make. Obviously, a fire burns in his heart. He not only loves God's people, but he fears God and he cares for truth and he upholds justice. You see, grace is only one dimension of his character. He says, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. This is what he'll do to the proud. He says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Jesus returns to earth to vent God's wrath on evil men and to show his loving kindness toward Israel. And he'll, do, and he'll do both at the exact same time. As Jesus celebrates the vengeance that he has exacted in his anger on the wicked, he will, in addition, sing the praises of God's faithfulness to Israel and his loving kindness to Israel. And again, there's no contradiction. God cares equally about both mercy and justice, his fury and his great goodness. See, we're the ones that create the contradiction, but in God's mind, they both go together. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45. He said, inasmuch as you do it, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Throughout the long centuries and all the anti-Semitic deeds done to Israel, Jesus has taken it all personally. We're told, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Throughout the Old Testament, an angel, often the angel of the Lord, or the angel of his presence, would come to Israel's defense. Not always, but often, he was the pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And he would come and he would carry God's people Israel. Verse 10, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. In other words, the Lord at times judged his own people in hopes of bringing them to repentance. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? He remembered the exodus from Egypt, how God had redeemed his people from slavery for a reason. He says, for as a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. 
And you see, the reason he had led his people, how he, the reason he had led them into rest, was to make a name for himself among the nations, a glorious name. And that is indeed what happened. All the earth trembled because of the greatness of God through the exodus, through God leading his people, through the sea and through the wilderness. And then in verse 15, the prophet Isaiah, he cries out to Israel's deliverer. He says, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Isaiah is crying out for God to return. And he will when Jesus comes to the earth a second time. He says, your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. Notice he moans here and mourns here the loss of God's sanctuary or his holy temple. The Israelis, we're told, only had it a little time. You know, over the last... 1,945 years. The Jews have possessed their land just 67 of those years. For the last 19 centuries, they have never had a temple. What sits on the Temple Mount today are two Muslim mosques. And thus the Jews are unable to offer a legitimate legal sacrifice to God. As a result, Judaism has been relegated an obsolete religion. You see, the Jewish religion has been made impossible to obey. As Isaiah says here, it's as if the Hebrew people had never had a relationship with God or been called by His name. This is the cry of any honest Jew today. He's tormented by the realization of both God's holiness and his own religion's hollowness. Where do they make a sacrifice? They have no place to sacrifice. God calls for one, but they have no temple. Jesus will return to deliver Israel, but right now he waits until she's ready to repent. Chapter 64 seems to be the prayer of a surviving Jew who is living or who will be living toward the end of the great tribulation. Jerusalem is under siege, and so he cries to God for help. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. What a prayer to pray. What a day to come. One day, God will rend the heavens. He will shake the mountains. He will burn up our governments like a pile of debris. Like a brush fire, the nations will tremble before God's Son. Matthew 24, verse 21, describes it as an intense time. There will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, 
nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, literally Israel's sake, those days will be shortened. Revelation chapter 6 through 16 speaks of cataclysmic, catastrophic plagues that will come upon the planet in these last days. Nature goes berserk. The earth will wobble like a drunk man. God will stone the earth for its blasphemy with 100-pound hailstones. Revelation chapter 6 says that kings and commanders will hide in the caves from, quote, the wrath of the Lamb. What an ironic term. The wrath of the Lamb? A Lamb known for His wrath? And yet this is Jesus. But instead of repenting, man becomes more brazen. The mighty men, they try to hide from the Lord. I like how Vance Havner puts it. The day is coming when the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole in the ground. It ends when God's Son returns. Jesus will make a name for Himself. He'll show the world who it is they've been trifling with. Isaiah says Jesus will cause nations to tremble. And then verse 3. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountain shook at your presence. The writer recalls how Mount Sinai shook before God, and mountains will shake again. Hebrews 12 tells us that one day, all that can be shaken will be shaken. A final great shaking awaits this planet. He says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for Him. And if you know your New Testament, this is a familiar verse. It's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. You remember? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. But in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul applies it to God's blessings. Here, its context is of His judgments. Yet both extremities, the abundance of His blessing and the severity of His judgment is something that the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard. Both will blow our minds. And then verse 5, You meet Him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. And of course, the Hebrew is quite vulgar here. It speaks literally of used minstrel cloths, literally tampons. God is not impressed with our attempts at self-righteousness. He considers all of our righteous deeds as filthy rags. He says, we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Isaiah puts it at the end of verse 5, we need to be saved. Hey, if our best works are nothing but filthy rags, we need salvation. We need someone to step into our situation and deliver us. We need to be saved. Verse 7, and there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Again, man's situation is desperate. He has no desire for God. He's consumed by his sin. 
But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. And all we are the work of your hands. He's saying our hope is in God. We're made by the hands of the potter. We pray he works again one day with the clay. He says, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Isaiah isn't speaking here of redemption, but of creation. When he says, we are all your people. You know, we hear a lot today about the brotherhood of man, that God is the father of us all. It's true that God is our common creator, but that doesn't make us all brothers. In fact, one day Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 42, He said, you are of your father the devil. That doesn't square with the brotherhood of man. He said, I'm not related to you. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we're told, As many as received him, that is, received Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God. God's true children are those who've received Jesus. Our brothers, our sisters, are not those who have been born, but those who have been born again. And then verse 10 tells us, Your your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Here it seems that Isaiah is foreseeing the temple's destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., the invaders torched the temple built by Solomon. The Jews who saw it, they couldn't believe it. They had not taken God's warning seriously. They didn't think that he would destroy his own temple. And now they're asking again, will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? And then in chapter 65, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. In Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes these verses to explain the relationship between the church and Israel. When the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God turned His attention to the Gentiles. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. And for the last 1983 years, the gospel has gone to a nation not called by His name. To the Gentiles, to you and to me. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul tells us that hardening has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's only then that all Israel will be saved. In other words, when that last Gentile is forgiven and comes to know Jesus and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then God will return His attention to Israel and He'll bring about the salvation of the Jews. At the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. And then in verse 3, God continues to describe the rebellion of Israel. He says, A people who provoked me to anger continually to my face, 
who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. I mean, these were idolatrous practices. The only legitimate sacrifices were offered in the temple. He says, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. And again, obviously, these are rebellious Jews he's talking about here. Pork was off limits to the Jews. And yet these guys were pigging out on bacon. They were eating swine's flesh, abominable things, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Now, here are the people who had a holier-than-thou attitude. They even looked down, they were committing these abominable things, and yet they were looked down, in, down their noses at other people. He says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. In other words, God can't avoid their stench. And then verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills, Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. In that culture, people had folds in their robes where they would carry anything that their hands couldn't hold. And so here God is saying, because of Israel's idolatry, He will pour out on them more judgment than they can handle. It will spill over into their folds, into, the, into their bosom, the folds in their robes. He says, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Israel will be judged, but the Bible's clear, a remnant will survive. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that when Jerusalem is attacked, many of the Jews will flee to the wilderness. Remember, Isaiah 16 got more specific. God's outcasts will find refuge in Moab, in the rock city of Selah, or Petra. In his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, Jesus said that when the Jews see the Antichrist's abomination, those who are in Judea will flee to the mountains. This all, this all points to a future Jewish hideout. The Jews will escape to that area around the Dead Sea, to Basra, that is Edom. And that's why the avenger of blood in chapter 63 is seen coming up from Basra with his Rome stained. The final battle for Jerusalem will cover all the promised land from Megiddo to Edom. And then verse 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. In the aftermath of Armageddon, he gives the land that he has conquered to his heirs, to the descendants of Judah. Sharon, which is the coastal plain, you know, between the uh, Judean Samaria, the inner mountains, and the sea. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. In the valley of Achor, or the Jordan Valley, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Israel will dwell from the coast to the Jordan River. Verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, 
and who furnish a drink offering for many. Gad and many were idols. And the word many means number. And God is telling them here that their number is up. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. Play on words. And you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Remember, the Savior will also be the slayer. Idolatry will be judged. Don't fool yourself. God is angry with the wicked. And He will punish those who have followed after idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. The Jews who escaped Jerusalem and sought refuge in the rocks will be saved. But those who bought into the idolatry, those who bowed to the Antichrist, those who got caught up in his religion, they will be slain. Verse 16, So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Today, Jerusalem does not rejoice. I mean, think about it. The center of the city is a wailing wall. But a new day will dawn for the city of Jerusalem. Verse 17 parallels Revelation 21 verse 1. The vision of the new heaven and new earth. See, Revelation teaches us that after the great tribulation and God's judgments, Jesus will establish His kingdom on the earth. He'll sit upon the throne of David and He'll rule the world for a thousand years. God made promises to Abraham and then to David and then to all of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. There's a time of blessing and prosperity that Israel has yet to enjoy. During the kingdom age, God will roll back most of the curse. He will restore the earth to its pre-fall glory. The polluted planet will become a paradise again. You know, Romans chapter 8 verse 22 tells us that today the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It seems that all of nature knows things are not right. Things are out of sync. I think sometimes when the trees start creaking and the birds start chirping, you know, it's nature's way of saying that things aren't right yet. Things need to be put right. 
Today, Mother Nature is out of sync with Father God. But Jesus is going to redeem. He's going to restore all that sin has touched from our puny bodies to our polluted sky. All the damage done by sin during the Great Tribulation will be repaired. The waters and the oceans will be healed. And there will be a strange mix of people populating the planet during the thousand years that Jesus reigns. The survivors of the tribulation will be joined by the saved from ages past who will descend at the rapture, They'll re, or who ascended at the rapture and will descend at the second coming. They'll return with Jesus to reign and rule with Him, and we'll be among them. Satan will be chained for a thousand years, the Scripture says. This allows mankind to thrive in his perfect utopia. See, when the Prince of Peace is on the throne, world peace will become a reality. Sadly, though, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is allowed a short swan song. He's let loose for a season for a final test. Will those who have known only the rule of Jesus succumb to temptation and rebel against him? And sadly, they do, forever proving that it's not our environment that's the problem. It's our sinful nature. See, even after a millennium of perfection, man will still rebel. God ends the uprising with a restructuring of the heavens and the earth. The present order ends in a giant conflagration. The physical universe will be no more. And in its place, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Back in Isaiah 61, we noticed how Jesus saw 2,000 years of history in a single comma. Do you remember that? From that one verse, he sorted out events that occurred at his first coming from events that are reserved for his second coming. In other words, we learn from Luke chapter 4 that Jesus saw Isaiah 61 as a sweeping prophecy that included events separated by 2,000 years. And here again, this is what we have in Isaiah 65 and 66. The prophet sees the future, but it's like looking at a mountain range. He sees the peaks, but he doesn't necessarily see the valleys that separate the peaks. And thus he lacks depth perception. And so some of what he writes belongs to the kingdom age when Jesus rules, and then other visions of what he sees belongs to the eternal state or the new heaven and the new earth, and it's kind of left to us and the Holy Spirit to sort it out. So verse 20 tells us, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. Wow, the child shall die at 100 years old. Notice, now this is not the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, for there is still death here. There is still sin. Revelation 21 verse 4 and 27 says of eternity or the new Jerusalem that there shall be no death or anything that defiles. This isn't the case here in verse 20. Here Isaiah is describing the kingdom age. And life will be very different, although sin and death will remain. And yet a person a hundred years old will still be considered a child. That implies that long lifespans, common before the flood, apparently will resume in the kingdom age. You know, the mysteries of aging are still largely unknown to us. 
But for some reason, around the age of 25, we stop rejuvenating. And we start to die. Did you know you've been dying since you were 25? Some experts have supposed that our aging is triggered by the solar radiation, which could explain why men lived 900 years before the flood. For remember, some of the water that fueled the flood was suspended in a canopy that shrouded the earth at the time. And that canopy could have very well blocked out a lot of the solar rays that we get today. It's after the flood, very shortly after the flood, that you see the, the ages begin to decrease down to what they are now. Whatever the mechanics that were involved that caused it all, in the kingdom, a centenarian, a hundred-year-old person, will still be considered a kid. Be pretty amazing. And then verse 20 continues. He says, The child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Notice sin will still occur in the kingdom age. And it won't be tolerated, by the way. Psalm 2 tells us that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Rebellions will be put down quickly. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, there'll be no more inequities. Someone falling on hard times and another person taking advantage. That'll no longer be the case. He says, For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Wow, as the days of a tree. You know, if you've ever been to, with us to Israel and you've been to the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see some 2,000-year-old olive trees. You know, there are redwoods in Northern California that are 4,000 years old. People in the kingdom will, will have the age of a tree. They'll live long. They'll enjoy life. King Jesus will prove to be a benevolent dictator. And they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. You know, when man sinned, his work was cursed. Today we labor in vain, do we not? We encounter obstacles, thorns and thistles. We work by the sweat of our brow. In other words, we never get out of our work all that we put into it. And this is what never dawns on some people. This is why some people bounce from job to job to job, always looking for the perfect job. Hey, you're not going to find it in this world. There's thorns and thistles. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. You're never going to get out of your work all that you put into it. It's just part of the curse. But one day, the curse will be removed. And we'll no longer labor in vain. In that day, work will be no sweat. It'll be beautiful. Notice, too, in this thousand years, parents will no longer bring children into a troubled world. Isn't this what's as scary to us parents today? I think about what kind of world my grandkids are going to live in. Oh, my. Parents know they're bringing their child into a world fraught with temptation and danger, and it's scary. It makes a parent leery. It causes a dead many sleepless nights. But this will no longer be a problem when Jesus reigns. Imagine worry-free parenting. If that doesn't get you saved, nothing will. 
It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Isn't that a beautiful promise? In that day, God will answer our prayers before we even finish praying them. There'll be no faith-testing waits. He says, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now you remember, before the flood, man and animal enjoyed a peaceful relationship together. This is how Noah could collect the animals and board the ark, because there was no hostility between man and the animals. But after the flood, you remember, God added meat to man's diet. Man would now go out and hunt for animals and put meat on the table. And thus, to even the score and to help the animals survive, God put a natural hostility now between the animals and man. He told Noah, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast. Animals can now get our goose. But this all gets rolled back in the kingdom age. Today, the wolf and the lamb are natural predators. But in the kingdom age, they'll cozy up together. Imagine, man-eating lions will become vegetarians like domesticated oxen. Notice, though, the one part of the curse that remains. The snake will still crawl on his belly and eat our dust. And it will be a reminder of our fall and of the tempter. And then chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. You know, whenever man has built God a temple, he has had to use God's supplies. Who made the stones and the mortar but God? And when we use His stuff, you're not really building Him anything. I mean, you're using His stuff. He says, but on this one I will look. On Him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. See, here is how to build God a temple in which He really wants to dwell. Give Him a humble heart. Give him a heart that fears his word. God loves making his home in the humble heart. He says, He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man, and he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. In other words, Isaiah is condemning the man who uses a religion as a substitute for sincerity. I mean, just sacrificing a lamb for nothing more than sacrifice's sake is nothing more than breaking a dog's neck. If it's not accompanied by sincere repentance and love for God. Once again, it's all about the attitude of the heart, not necessarily the specifics of the actions. He says, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that 
in which I do not delight. These men chose to do evil, and now God will choose to punish their evil. He says, hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your glory, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Notice that the Lord fully repays his enemies. Boy, I read that and I want to make sure that I'm not God's enemy. Verse 7 marks an incredible prophecy that actually speaks of the nation Israel. He says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Here is a modern-day miracle more amazing than sending a man to the moon or creating a vaccine or sending wireless information. A nation was born in a single day and with no labor pains, without the normal travail and political upheaval that usually precedes the birth of nations. I mean, think about the United States. When our nation was born, it was preceded by eight brutal, costly years of struggle and violence and war. But on November 29th, 1947, at British insistence, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine and make room for a Jewish state. Just five months later, at 12.01 a.m. on May the 15th, 1948, Israel declared its statehood without the normal travail that creates nations, without a battle or a coup d'etat or a revolt. Suddenly, a nation, boom, was born in a day. Notice Isaiah doesn't prophesy that pain won't follow. It did. The miracle was that the fighting didn't start until after the nation was born. For immediately after their declaration... The Arab states around Israel launched a military attack on God's people. Author John Phillips, he writes of what this new nation faced. He says, the situation seemed hopeless for the Jews. The Arabs enjoyed vast superiority in men, arms, and equipment. The Jews had no air force. A major world power was giving help to their enemy. The invasion was on three fronts. The Jewish armed forces were untrained and untried and had no room to maneuver. But the world watched with astonishment as the Jews first stemmed the rush of the Arab tide and then flung the armies of their foes back across the borders. When you drive from Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem, you drive by some of the tanks and some of the old artillery pieces that line the road there that date back to the War of Independence that was fought right after their declaration in 1948. And it's a testimony to God's deliverance of His people against incredible odds, with no major weaponry, 
the Jews somehow fought back the Arab advance and won the victory and saved their nation. And over the last 67 years, the Israelis have fought six more conflicts with their Arab nations. Most recently, the war in Gaza with the Palestinians. Today, Israel is in more danger than ever. Realize Israel and its territories contain 6 million Jews and little over 10,000 square miles. Whereas the Arab League consists of 22 nations, 422 million people, and occupies a landmass of over 5 million square miles. The Arabs occupy a vast area, all of North Africa, the Middle East, from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. And all I'm counting are the Arabs. There are many more non-Arab Muslim countries. And yet, you tell me that the Arabs can't find room for a Palestinian state in all that vast land? They want Israel to give up their little slither of land to do so? Are you kidding? I mean, today the Arabs have vowed to drive Israel into the sea. And they continue to arm themselves to the teeth. Iran, who is not a member of the Arab League, but who hates Israel, may already have nuclear capabilities. Perhaps you heard Benjamin Netanyahu's speech this past week before Congress. I told the folks on the cab, I said, when you get to Israel, uh, tell Netanyahu I'm going to vote for him for our president next time. He'd make a good one, wouldn't he? When you see the odds that are stacked against this little nation of Israel, you wonder, how can they possibly survive? And yet verse 9 provides us the confidence. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says the Lord? In other words, God didn't conceive the country to now abandon her. No, he pledges to defend this tiny nation against all her many enemies. And amazingly, every time the Arabs launch a jihad, Israel enlarges her borders and gains more territory. To me, there's only one explanation. The God in heaven fights for Israel. And this is what will prompt the Lord's return to planet earth, the Antichrist's invasion of Israel and of Jerusalem. Here's how I think it's going to unfold. Antichrist is going to lead his army into the valley of Megiddo. Then he's going to lay siege to Jerusalem. The Jews there will flee to the wilderness, down to Edom, to Basra. Jesus will return. As 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, Jesus will destroy the enemy with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. That's some bad breath for you right there. His defense of the Jews will take Jesus to Basra, where he'll slaughter the enemy. And there he'll stain his garments. He'll tread out the wine press. Then he'll return to Jerusalem. And he'll enter the temple by the eastern gate. And he'll reign there for a thousand years. And so he says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you who love her, rejoice for joy with her. All you who mourn for her, 
though we are the church and though Israel is Israel, our destinies are tied together. We are trusting in the covenants and promises that God has made to Israel. Psalm 122 verse 6 commands the church to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, when her victory finally comes, those who have prayed for her will rejoice with her. He says that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. We'll be partakers of Israel's blessing. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. The name Jerusalem, it means city of peace. Finally, the city will live up to its name. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her sides shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. We Gentiles will benefit from God's blessing on Jerusalem. We'll flow to her and we'll enjoy her prosperity. Remember what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And indeed we will be. For when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to His servants and His indignation to His enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by His sword the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. What ominous words. The slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves. In other words, those who prepare themselves to worship idols. To go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination. And the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. You start eating mice, you need to be consumed. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations in tongues and they shall come and see my glory. He'll put His justice on display. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish. Tarshish, of course, was Spain. It was perhaps even Britain. And Pool and Lud, those are African tribes, who draw the bow into Tubal, which was Russia, and Yavin, which is Greece, to the coastlands afar off, that might even be us, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. God will send retrievers to the nations, to all of these places, to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. A final ingathering of Jews will take place. He says, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Ezekiel 40, 
Chapter 40 through 47 describes a temple that will sit on Mount Zion during the kingdom age. And there will be priests there. There will be Levites that will make sacrifices, but not sacrifices for atonement, rather sacrifices as teaching tools, as visual aids for us to understand the greatness of the work of Jesus Christ. But priests and Levites will be needed. They'll be recruited from this vast final homecoming of Jews. And then verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Zechariah chapter 14 foresees this same practice in the kingdom age, every year, once a year, at the fall feast of tabernacles, Everyone from all over the world will make a visit to Israel, to Jerusalem. They'll come up to the holy mountain to worship King Jesus. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And here is an eerie picture. I've never seen this on an Israel travel brochure. But apparently it will be a regular stop for Israel tours in the kingdom age. The pilgrims will all drop by to see the burning bodies of those who have rebelled against God. And they will serve as a memorial to God's righteousness. And there we have the prophecy of Isaiah. 